The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Hey, about two weeks ago, uh, my pastor friend Stu invited me to a meeting with U.S. Congressman Jeff Fortenberry and some other pastors from, from here in Lincoln. And the whole purpose of, of that gathering was for him to talk about a, a pro-life bill that he has been working on. But before talking about the, the bill and the issues of, of pro-life, Congressman Fortenberry, as a, as a good politician, uh, he worked to try to establish some common ground with this room filled of, of pastors. Now, as I understand it, uh, Fortenberry is a Roman Catholic, and so he's, he's kind of working from that angle. And he said, essentially, he said, hey, everyone knows that the world is broken, okay? Uh, we just don't agree on how to fix it which is an insightful thing to hear him say. And, and primarily, I assume, because the point of this gathering is to talk about pro-life issues. He, he says, we, we have to begin with human dignity. That's where he wanted to begin. The, the dignity of the human being created in the image of God. That's where this all starts, he says. And, and, and when I said, we, like, we don't agree on that anymore. And, and again, he's thinking pro-life. He's thinking the dignity of an unborn child, but not just the dignity of an unborn child. Human dignity in general that extends to the unborn child as one created in the image of God. And he says, if we get that wrong, right, we'll get the family wrong. And when we get the family wrong, we get the systems of society wrong that are to build upon the primacy of the family. And if we get the systems of society wrong, we get the systems to fix the systems of society wrong, and that's where we are. Just about everything is broken, and then Congressman Fortenberry looks around the room. He's trying to, you know, really connect with us. And then he says, and I'm supposed to fix it? <laughs> right? So do you see his point? Like everything is broken and, and, and we're trying to fix the manifestations of this brokenness. But our solutions, they don't go deep enough. And the question that we should all be asking, therefore, is, man, how deep have you, do you have to go? Like how, how deep do you really have to go to fix this problem? And I would contend, and the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans would contend, that even going as deep as human dignity doesn't go deep enough. See, see our fundamental problem is not, it's not horizontal. You know, estranged relationships with one another, and we just need to learn how to get along. That's extremely important, but it doesn't go deep enough. Our fundamental problem isn't even anthropology, you know, the, the dignity of the human being, though that too is absolutely extremely important, and as Christians we should absolutely contend for the life of the unborn and the dignity of all human beings, but it's still horizontal. It's about how we treat one another, right? No, our, our fundamental problem isn't horizontal, it's vertical. Our fundamental problem is that we are estranged with God. And only Christianity goes there. Secularism doesn't go there. But Christianity does. The gospel does. And Paul wants us to know that. Paul, he wants us to know and to understand the gospel and to not be ashamed of it. Now, the text in front of us, it's one of the most important texts in all of Scripture. That's not hyperbole. That's reality. 
Uh, It wouldn't be a stretch to say that there are no two verses of greater importance in the whole scripture than right here. Romans 1, 17. So open up your copy of God's word. Let's look at these together. Romans 1, verse 16. The very first word, you'll see it there is what? Say it out loud with me. What's the first word there? For. For. It could also be translated because, which, which tells us that Paul is continuing his thought from verse 15. Right, verses 16 and 17 don't just drop out of nowhere. They're part of a letter that Paul wrote, and he's continuing his thought here. This word for, it shows up several times in these uh, two little verses. And it's really helpful for us in understanding the flow of Paul's argument. L- listen to it with this emphasis. I'll actually start reading in verse 15. And Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. For, or because, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For, or because, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For, or because, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, what we have here is like a cascading waterfall, okay, Um, where you drop down into a pool and you kind of swim around a little bit, and then you drop down into the next pool and you swim around a little bit, and then the next and so on. So keep one eye in your copy of the scripture, and then look up here with your other eye on the screen. I want to show you the flow of this cascading waterfall in Paul's argument. It goes like this. Paul is eager to preach the gospel, verse 15. He's eager to preach it to the Romans. He is eager to preach the gospel because he's not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And the gospel is the saving power of God because the righteousness of God is revealed in it by faith. This understanding of the righteousness of God is supported by the Old Testament, which says the righteous shall live by faith. That's a quotation from Habakkuk 2.14, which you should recognize from our series in the Minor Prophets over the summer. This is Paul's argument. This is the cascading waterfall of the flow of his argument. He's eager to preach the gospel, and he tells us why. Why is he eager? Because he's not ashamed of it. See, the opposite of ashamed is not unashamed, it's eagerness. Why is he not ashamed? Because it's the power of God for salvation, that's why. Why is the gospel the power of God for salvation? Because the righteousness of God is revealed in it by faith. Now, if we take that and just kind of mold it into, you know, just shape it a little bit into something that feels a little bit more applicational for us this morning, here's the outline. Number one, we, we are not to be ashamed of the gospel because, number two, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And the reason it's the power of God for salvation is because, number three, the righteousness of God is revealed in it by faith. Now, when you think about the the way that Paul puts this, when when you think about his argument, right, uh, it's curious as to why he includes the part about being, you know, not being ashamed. It's curious why he puts that in there. He could have skipped that, couldn't he have? If you think about it, he could have said, more simply, I am eager to preach the gospel to you because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But, But he inserts this part about being unashamed. Why does he do that? Why does he talk that way? Well, why do any of us talk that way? 
Why would any of us say that we aren't ashamed of, of, of something? Only if there's a temptation to be ashamed of it, right? Only if there's some reason, worldly or otherwise, that one might be ashamed of it. Paul knew this temptation. I wonder if you do. He told the, the Corinthians, right, when he wrote his letter to them, he told the Corinthians that he came to them in weakness and in fear and trembling. He, he knew that the message of the cross was foolishness to some. You know, and then take into the context, Rome. Think about Rome. Rome was an extremely proud city. The, the, the gospel, on the other hand, came from relative obscurity. <laughs> in the eyes of Rome, Jerusalem was a little capital city of a little nation um, that had been conquered by big Rome. Right? It's, it's just, it's almost irrelevant, you know. It, Rome, on the other hand, was the center of politics. Rome was the center of entertainment and thought life. And the gospel, <laughs> it's about a carpenter from Nazareth who was killed by crucifixion. That's the lowest form of execution given to criminals in the Roman Empire. And then listen, if, if that wasn't enough to set the temptation of being ashamed before Paul, his experience, his experience in preaching it surely would have too, wouldn't it? Paul, as he, as he preached the gospel, do you remember what happened to Paul as he preached the gospel? It, it aroused uh, opposition like everywhere he went, didn't it? Contempt, ridicule, even persecution? You remember the time in Acts 14 where Paul preaches the gospel in, in Lystra? And they get so upset with him that they try to they stone him. They throw rocks at him trying to kill him. And then they drag him out of the city and leave him to die. Why? Because he preached the gospel. Paul has some reasons, we might say. To be ashamed of the gospel. And in every age, from Paul down to us, it has been possible and is today possible to be ashamed of the gospel. See, that word ashamed, it can, it can also be translated offended. The gospel, we must acknowledge, is offensive. It's offensive. And if you don't agree with that, well, I think you will after the next five weeks as we make our way from Romans 1 into Romans 3. It's offensive to natural man. See, the gospel is actually very offensive in our culture today because it, it, it simultaneously undermines our self-righteousness and challenges our self-indulgence. It undermines our self-righteousness by, by telling us there is nothing you can do to fix your deepest problem. Nothing. That's offensive to, to religious and moralistic people who really think that their decency gives them a leg up in the world. And if everyone would just think like them, live like them, vote like them, all the problems of the world would go away, see? But the gospel says, just being a good person, whatever your definition of that is, just being a good person isn't enough. In fact, you'll never be good enough. The, the gospel says you, you'll never be good enough. You've got to come through Jesus. Only Jesus is enough. The, the gospel, see, it reveals a need that you can't meet. The world hates that. And therein lies the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. Likewise, the gospel challenges our self-indulgence. I mean, it's insulting, isn't it? Isn't it a little bit offensive to read the Bible, call something sin that you'd rather prefer to do? <laughs> right? Or someone you love would rather prefer to do? It's offensive to people who subscribe to the thinking, you do you. The gospel is extremely offensive to you, do you. 
It's offensive to the irreligious who would say, if we just let everyone do what they really want, if we just love each other and get past all this sin talk, then we'd be onto the path of healing in the world. The gospel says, no. No, we won't. We'll be on the highway to hell, passing through the turnpike of judgment. The gospel, you see, is insulting for, for the irreligious. It, it's insulting for the irreligious who think wrongly, that, the, that, that they believe wrongly in the innate goodness of man. Who believe that man is not inherently sinful, but good. For them to hear that you're so sinful, so wicked, so vile, that God had to send his one and only son to die for you, it's insulting. And therefore, therein lies the temptation again to be ashamed of the gospel. Now it's here that I think that it's absolutely appropriate really for us to acknowledge, especially in our day and age and our cultural moment, that there are versions of the gospel, other gospels, false gospels that really aren't gospels at all that don't cause this offense. And it's helpful for us to identify those. To, to look around our, our culture, to look around our city and our neighborhoods, really, and to identify these false gospels that aren't gospels so that we can make sure that we've really got a hold of the real and true gospel of the Bible. And I've got three of these false gospels I want to share with you this morning. Each of them, what they do is they skew who Jesus is. The first gospel, the first false gospel that is popular in our time is what I want to call the hero Jesus gospel. The hero Jesus gospel, what it does is it presents Jesus as a great example to follow without presenting him as the great sacrifice to receive. The hero gospel, um, the hero Jesus gospel says, look to Jesus, right? Learn from Jesus, live like Jesus to the best of your ability, and don't worry so much about all this talk about substitutionary atonement for your sins. Just focus on being like Jesus. Just focus on that. Nobody's ever offended by that. That's what makes it so popular. It's what fills the liberal megachurch in my neighborhood every Sunday. In fact, the world in general, and, and Lincolnites in particular, rather like this gospel. Do you know why? Because if you present Jesus merely as a hero, merely as, a, as an example, people will say, boy, thank you very much. You know, I, I think I might just follow him on this issue and this way and this way. I'm going to be like that. And I think I can. I think I can. I just have to put in the hard work. And I can try hard enough. I can. We can. We can do it. And because they think they can do it, they take it all as a compliment. It's, it stokes the ego, right? But as soon as you start talking about how Jesus is one that, despite your best efforts, it's impossible to imitate that he actually condemns all and judges all because all are sinful and fall short of his glory. Well, now they're not so sure. Now they think that you've got an entirely different gospel altogether, and they're right. The gospel of the Bible is not the hero Jesus gospel of our day. It's not. Secondly, the, the gospel of the Bible is not the psychologist Jesus gospel of our day either. The psychologist Jesus gospel says, do you have problems? which is a fabulous way for a false gospel to start because, of course, we all have problems, right? But, but the, 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 just come to Jesus, the psychologist's gospel says, and he'll make it all better. He'll make it all better. Are you anxious? Are you depressed? Is there some behavior that you're needing to change because it's ruining your relationships and your sense of, of self-worth? Are you lonely? 
Come to Jesus. He'll take it all away. He'll give you some tips. He'll give you some tricks. Life hacks, you know. He'll give you a new way to look at things. He'll help you resolve all your problems and restore your mental health. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus isn't our great example. I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't help. He does. But if we reduce Jesus down, I hope you see, to only what we get out of him, that doesn't offend anyone, does it? How could it? We all have problems. And we all want, it, we all want them to go away. But if you start talking about standing with other Christians, you know, in the, in the midst of conflict, <laughs> if you tell them your life might actually get harder when you become a Christian, that you might just suffer differently, but, but more. If you start to talk about working through our differences, you know, political, social, and so on, while remaining in Christian community, listen, that doesn't make life less stressful. It makes it more. It makes it harder. You know, if you start talking about being vulnerable with one another, and not just transparent, but actually opening ourselves up for the Holy Spirit to work through one another, through another brother and sister in your life, not just sorting it out on your own with psychologist Jesus. If you start to talk about standing firm against persecution, and standing up for right doctrine in a world that wants to hear only about hero Jesus and psychological Jesus, suddenly they think you've got a different gospel altogether. And they're right. One more, we'll call it permissive Jesus gospel. The permissive Jesus gospel. It's a gospel that doesn't call you to holiness. Historically, it was called the the gospel of antinomianism, where we're saved by grace, and now we can live essentially however we want to. It's It's the old Outback, I don't know if Outback Steakhouse still has this as their slogan. It would probably not be PC anymore, right? But the old Outback Steakhouse slogan, no rules, just right, all right? No shalls, no shall nots, no one telling you what you should or shouldn't do. It's all up to you. That kind of gospel never offended anyone either, did it? No one is ashamed of that gospel. It's a gospel of license. Go ahead and sin. You're forgiven. Don't let anyone put demands on your life. Don't place yourself any, under any authority other than yourself. Don't let anyone should on you. But start reading the imperatives of Scripture to them. The commands of Jesus start calling sin, sin in their life. Start calling people to, to repentance as the Bible does. I mean, begin the, the, the biblical process of church discipline with someone who refuses to repent. And you'll find out just how different the permissive gospel is. They'll be horribly offended. If you read the New Testament, one of the litmus tests that you take away from reading the New Testament is that the gospel, the biblical gospel, is always offensive to natural man. And if it's not, there's a decent chance that you got your hands on a different gospel that really isn't a gospel at all. It's the true gospel, friends. It is the the biblical gospel that Paul says he's not ashamed of, which makes it even more astounding that he says it. It's this gospel, the the biblical gospel that he's going to expound in the rest of this letter, the gospel of sin and separation and wrath. Our need for atonement and propitiation and reconciliation. The the gospel that saves us not into an an individualized, curated life of you and Jesus, but rather into the body of Christ with other believers. The gospel that calls us not just to one-time repentance, but a life of repentance and faith and pursuing holiness. That gospel, that one. 
It's not popular. It's offensive. To natural man, it's offensive. And so if you feel a little bit of a temptation to be ashamed of that gospel, we might just be starting to get our hands on the real thing this morning. I want to point out Paul's dogged focus here on the gospel, right? He doesn't take his eyes off the gospel. It's, it's the, this gospel, it's the biblical gospel that he's not ashamed of. And I say that because sometimes, at various points in the history of the church, we might be ashamed of the church, or even other Christians. If we look back on, on things in the history of the church, like, like the Crusades, Right? Or, or even you know, early Christians in our country, some of them, their views on slavery, shameful. Right? The, the ways in which certain churches, and I, I want to be very careful with how we talk about the church, lest we fall into the cultural folly of projection, casting upon the church, sins of a church. But the ways in which certain churches at times have talked about sensitive sin issues, like homosexuality, same-sex attraction, singling it out in, in some way as if it is this unforgivable sin and thereby alienating an entire population of people who, just like everyone else, need to be saved from sin by grace through faith. Or church leaders who sin in horrible ways some of the, the church leader stories that maybe you've heard in, in Christian news cycles, right, about spiritual abuse or sexual abuse or financial abuse. These have all found homes in church leaders, cultures of domineering, exactly counter to Peter's commands for shepherds for the flock in 1 Peter chapter 5. And the mess that all that creates, the church baggage that it creates, it's shameful. And it's okay to feel ashamed of that. But what I want to contend for is that you can experience and even hold to a level of shame with respect to all of that and still maintain a dogged focus here on the gospel. Not compromising and becoming ashamed of the gospel. And... Still loving the church. Because despite all the mess, we are all sinners saved by grace, called together to be the church, working out our faith in a community of sinful, messed up people just like you and me. We may experience being ashamed of the church, but it need not cause us to give up on our church. Because we're not ashamed of the gospel which creates the church and is the hope of the church and through the church, the hope of the world. The gospel is. And we're not to be ashamed of this gospel. Point number two, we're not to be ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because, precisely because, it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, Jew first and also to the Greek, he says. Three things to notice here in this part. Number one, we're told that this gospel is power. It's power. This, again, is something that actually makes the gospel offensive. It's not a philosophy. If it was a philosophy, you know, put it alongside the other philosophies, and we'll pick and choose, we'll tug and pull from all of them, but the gospel is not a philosophy, it's a power. The Greek word here is, is dunamis. 
It's what we get our word dynamite from. It's explosive power. The, the gospel isn't, it's not just some interesting information. It's not a, a system of, of right living and, and, and morality. It's a transforming declaration of truth. Tim Keller, a, a, you know, a former pastor in New York City, calls the gospel the, the power of God in verbal form. That's the gospel. The power of God in verbal form. And notice Paul doesn't say that the gospel is about power. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't say that it has power or even that it brings power. No, he says the gospel is power. It is. There's power in the gospel. And not just any old power, it's the power of God, which means perfect power. Perfect power. It's the power of God. The power of God for what? For salvation. That word would have carried incredible meaning in Paul's day. It means deliverance, personal or even national deliverance. See, salvation implies that you are saved from something. You're delivered. And you're not just saved from, you're saved to. What do we save from? What is this power of God, this gospel that we're not to be ashamed of? What does it save us from? Well, we're about to find out as we read the rest of Romans 1 through 3. But in brief, it saves us from sin. Not just sin in some abstract way, but the guilt of sin, and therefore the, therefore the penalty of sin, which is the wrath of God, it delivers us from condemnation. And not just condemnation in the here and now so that you don't feel bad about yourself. No, it, it delivers us from eternal condemnation. From hell. The wages of sin is death, Paul will say. We're saved from death, too. The gospel also delivers us from the power of sin. We'll see this later in the letter. The power of sin in the here and now as we make war against indwelling sin in our lives, even after the guilt of sin is taken away. And lastly, we're delivered from the stain or the pollution of sin, including ways that you've been sinned against. The blood of Jesus, John writes, 1 John 1.7, cleanses us from all sin. All of it. Well, if that's what we're delivered from, what are we delivered to? Remember, both are implied in this idea of salvation. Saved from and saved to or into. What are we saved into? The answer is a restored relationship with God. That's what. See, sin, we, we know this, right? sin, it separates us from God. It alienates us from God and his presence. Our problem, remember from the beginning, isn't just horizontal, it's vertical. We, we don't just need better examples to follow. We, we don't just need relief from our problems. Those things are horizontal. They don't go deep enough. No, you and I need our sins forgiven so that we can live and be in right relationship with God. The gospel delivers us into that. <laughs> it, it delivers us into a restored, glorious, joyful, helpful, satisfying relationship with God in heaven who has a lot to say about how we live as his delivered people, but who also sends his Holy Spirit to empower us to live in those ways. And not just us, this passage declares. This power is for everyone. Everyone, everywhere needs this, and anyone, anywhere can get in on it. How? It's for everyone who believes, Paul says. Everyone who believes. That's it. And we'll talk about faith here in a minute, but in Romans 10, Paul will say that faith comes how? From hearing the gospel. 
So if you're here this morning, <laughs> you're hearing the gospel. It's for you. You're sitting at home on your couch on the live stream and you're hearing this right now. You're hearing the gospel. It's for you. Somebody just happens to be listening to this three days from now on the podcast or three years from now, right, on the web. You're hearing the gospel. It's for you. There's no one hearing this who is in a pit beyond the gospel's reach. No one hearing this who is in too dark a spot for the gospel to shine. No one hearing it is too far gone for the gospel to come after. And Christians in the room. This goes for your mom. It goes for your dad. It goes for that brother of yours who you're really concerned about. It goes for that old college roommate of yours who you've been praying for. It goes for your neighbor. It goes for that, that, that beloved brother and sister in Christ who is beginning to doubt this for themselves. No one is too far gone for the gospel to come after that. How can I say that? Because it's the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also the Greek, Paul says, it's a loaded phrase, but let me just say it concisely here. It's for the religious and the irreligious. Paul's going to unpack that soon. Actually, in the opposite order, we'll see. But whether you grew up in church all your life, or you grew up on the streets all your life, or you know, however you want to paint the worst picture that you can paint or the best picture that you can paint, the gospel's for you. And Paul will tell us more about this Jew first business, but for now, rest assured, the gospel is the power of God for everyone who believes. Everyone. And because it's the power of God, it's perfect. When it works in your life, it works in your life. It secures. It establishes. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul says in Romans 8, no one, no thing, nothing at all, because it's the power of God, the perfect power of God for salvation. It saves securely. It delivers permanently and, and perfectly from and to completely. The gospel does. And this is what we truly need. It's what everyone, everywhere truly needs. Not just repaired, you know, estranged horizontal relationships. Not just better systems and structures. That doesn't go deep, it doesn't go deep enough. You need a restored, vertical relationship with the God of the universe. You know, that meeting that I was in with the, with the congressman, as he was talking about how everyone agrees that, you know, everything's broken and that he can't, that politics can't fix it all, that the problem starts lower down, as he was talking about that, uh, one of the pastors in the room very respectfully says, you know, Mr. Congressman, uh, what, would, what would be, you know, you're sitting in a room full of pastors, what would be your counsel, um, you know, to us as pastors? Do you know what he said? Preach the commandments. Hmm. Now I know what he's going for there. He's saying God's way. You know, that's what, that's what we need in the world. People living in accordance with, with God's word. But just preaching the commandments doesn't go deep enough, does it? Just telling people to, to try harder. Here's the rules. Follow them better. You know, it, it doesn't change anything because we can't. You can't change. We, you, we've, we've tried. You've tried. We can't perfectly keep God's commandments because we're sinful. And even if we could, without Jesus and being restored in this vertical relationship with God, what would be the result? Well, we'd get along really, really well all the way to hell. No, we need a solution 
that goes deeper still. One that reveals our sinfulness and our inability to perfectly keep the commandments and our need for Jesus. To take away your sin, to count you as righteous, to transform your heart such that you begin to love to obey the Lord, your God. You're empowered to do so by the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit who, you, who lives in you and you depend on him. We don't do that perfectly, but we're perfectly forgiven so that even when you fail, you don't wallow. You get up and you go some more. Only the gospel can do that. Preach the commandments? No, sir, we preach the gospel. It, and it alone, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And the reason it's the power of God for salvation, point number three now, is because the righteousness of God is revealed in it by faith. That's the reason that the gospel is power. Now think about that word righteousness, okay? We, we don't use that word a, a whole lot in our normal lives, at least I don't. Maybe you do, I, probably not, right? Think about it a minute. What does it mean to be right with someone? It's a positional word, isn't it? It means to be in good standing, you know? So if, if Megan and I have an argument, you know, which happens from time to time, if, if I sin against her in, in some way and, and I need to make it right, right? Until I do, I'm not right with her. I'm at odds. To, to be right with someone is to be in good standing with that person, to have no outstanding debts or liabilities. To be right with someone means that the other person doesn't have anything to hold against you, right? And what Paul says here is that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In other words, the gospel reveals to us the mystery of how one is counted as right or righteous before God. To be put in a position where God doesn't have anything to hold against you. Another word you may have heard used is justification. When we are counted as right before God, we are justified. That's what justification means. Counted right before God. And it all comes through the gospel. Now, what is the gospel again? Well, it's the good news about Jesus, isn't it? That though we are sinful and vile and wicked, though we are unrighteous and therefore deserving of wrath and condemnation and cut off from God, separated from God, alienated from God, not right with him, and unable due to our sinfulness to do anything about it, at just the right time, while we were still sinners, Christ came. Jesus did. He lived the perfect life that we could never live. He therefore was never unrighteous. He has always been righteous. God had nothing against him. And he died the perfect death in our place, right? He bore the wrath that, uh, of God that was due to us for our sins. He's our substitute. And he rose again, conquering death, ascended back into heaven, and now we, when we trust in him, he takes our sin away. Our unrighteousness, it, it's as if we died on the cross instead of him. We are united to him in his death. And... And his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness is credited to our account. It's as if we lived the perfect life instead of him. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. Where Christ takes on our sinfulness, our unrighteousness, and we take on his righteousness. That's the content of the gospel. 
But remember, the gospel isn't merely content. It isn't merely philosophy or or, or a theory. It's the power of God. And so you have the power source, right? The the gospel is the the power source. The power of God in, in verbal form. And that source, it reveals, it unleashes, it delivers this power to us through faith. Remember, it's the power of God for salvation, for everyone who believes, for everyone who responds in faith. And so we hear the gospel. We hear the content of the good news. And the Holy Spirit awakens us. We are born again, to use the words of Jesus. Our hearts are regenerated, to use the theological term. And with regenerated hearts... The channel of faith is created. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10 teaches. And now, that faith is the channel. It's the connection to the power of the gospel. Paul says it this way in in Ephesians 2, that it is by grace that you are saved through faith. Faith is the channel. Or in Philippians 3.9, he talks of not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but rather a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. It comes through the channel. It depends on the channel. And what's unleashed upon us, what is imputed to us through that channel of faith, is none other than the righteousness of God. In fact, the NIV renders it here in Romans 1.17 as the righteousness from God. His righteousness flows to us, giving us right standing with our maker. The deepest of deep problems, the vertical one, resolved. How does it come to you? By faith. Paul says here it's from faith for faith. From faith points to the truth that only by faith are we the beneficiaries of this righteousness. For faith underlines the truth that every believer is the beneficiary, no matter if you're Jew or Greek, no matter even the degree of your faith. Faith always carries through it the justifying righteousness of God. It always has, and it always will. That's the significance of Paul quoting Habakkuk 2.14 here. And it'll be the same significance of him telling us about Abraham in chapter 4. Church, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel by faith. That's the reason the gospel is power. It's the power of God for salvation. For everyone who believes. Fixing our deepest brokenness. A fixed brokenness upon which everything else is to be built. In the family, in our city, our society. A fixed brokenness without which nothing else can truly, lastingly be fixed. Be not ashamed of this gospel, friends. Be instead eager to believe it deeply in your hearts and to share it with everyone you know. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
And we praise you humbly for the beauty and the glory of your gospel. Father, would you guard us from feeling ashamed of it? Would you guard us of exchanging the biblical gospel for a false gospel and somehow assuaging our shame? Instead, Lord, empower us because we belong to you. We have been made right before you. We get to stand before you this morning knowing that you look upon us and you see nothing other than Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.